Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. Again, grace and peace to you. It's a joy this morning to be able to bring to you God's Word. For those of you who attend regularly, you'll know that we've been hearing from Pastor John from the book of Joshua. We've been looking at the lesser Joshua as he imperfectly led a sinful and rebellious people into the land of Canaan. We've seen how God was faithful to bring all of his precious promises to fruition. And yet we know in, in looking ahead that uh, those same people would be rebellious, their hearts would be insincere in their love and devotion to the Lord, and they would lose their rights to be in the promised land. And all of this would lead to centuries of what we know from the historical narrative of the people of Israel losing their land and being taken into a time in which God would cease to speak to his people through prophets and through imperfect leaders, and ultimately that would lead to God himself coming, the Messiah, the promised one. Jesus would come and, and deliver the message of salvation and repentance personally. And this morning, as we take a break from the book of Joshua, we'll be looking at the, the book of Matthew. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. For those of you who have a Bible at hand, you might notice that today's text that we'll read has some words in red. Those words are the word of the God-man, the words of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to grab a Bible if you have one near you at home today. Uh, fair confession, not all of the texts that you'll find today are in the PowerPoint slide. I'll also be preaching both from ESV and NASB, so keep you on your toes, but please have your Bibles handy. Won't have the joy of hearing pages turning uh, so much this morning, but I trust that you'll follow along as the Holy Spirit illuminates these words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 15. I'll read this text first, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord for his divine illumination of what Christ has to say to us today. Matthew 15, starting at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered them and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, 
false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning in our homes, perhaps even in different parts of the globe, and we come with the singular purpose of being spoken to through your word and worshiping you through the careful examination of Scripture. Father God, we just pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would illuminate for us these words from the Gospel of Matthew. We pray that they would be applicable to our lives, both individually and collectively as a church family. We pray that your Holy Spirit would allow them to to cut and to convict, and ultimately to heal and to sanctify. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll go through this passage slowly and carefully today. I'll have for you three different points of application. Those three different points of application all have to do with a call to self-examination. As you know, where we two have gotten together in our normal sense today, it would be a a communion Sunday. And with that, there is often a call to self-examination. And prayerfully, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through this text, we'll have the opportunity to do just that. Let's go through carefully, and I'll tell you what those points are as we move through. But let's look at the the first verse, the opening of this particular text that we'll read through together. We see in the overall narrative, there's uh, really four different groups of people in this conversation that Jesus has in a couple of different movements. And we begin by seeing the groups of the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So first it's important to to establish who are these Pharisees and scribes. I'll assume that some of you might be tuning in for the first time today and don't have this knowledge. So, So let me explain just a little bit of who these two groups of people are. The first one is the Pharisees. And the word Pharisee, interestingly enough, comes from an Aramaic word that we find in the book of Daniel. It's a, a word that, that God writes with the form of a human finger on the wall for King Nebuchadnezzar. And that word is an Aramaic word like parasim or paris, and that means divided. God tells Nebuchadnezzar he will divide the kingdom. So we know that this root word for Pharisee means divided or set apart. They were different from all of the other groups of, of Jews in Jesus' day. On first thought, that sounds good, right? Set apart. But what we would learn is that the Pharisees and their counterpart, the Sadducees, their, their understanding of God's word would be corrupted as they would add to the law human tradition. The Mosaic law would, would already include a daunting 613 commandments from God to obey, and they would add to those human traditions, burdening the people, and taking their focus on the ultimate intent of what God's commands were. The second group of people are the scribes. The scribes are an interesting group. I personally love the notion of what a scribe is. During the time of Babylonian captivity, the the scribe as a group would grow in their importance and their prominence. The scribes were likely descendants of the Levites, and since the temple was destroyed in 586 BC, the those who would have been in the temple were a bit unemployed due to the lack of having a temple in Babylon. They learned from the Babylonians, and one of the things they learned was the use of written language to write down oral tradition 
and to write down the history of God's people. In fact, we probably wouldn't have um, kings and chronicles had it not been for the scribes in Babylon. So the scribes seem to have started out well. One of my favorite scribes was, uh, of course, the prophet Jeremiah and his sidekick Baruch, a member of uh, an elite group that faithfully penned down the words of Jeremiah. So these scribes aren't, aren't all bad. These two groups of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, may have started out with an origin of good intent, but by the time we come to the, the, the advent of Christ, the advent of Messiah, these groups had completely missed the point. They had completely missed the point of having a heart set on worshiping and honoring Christ and instead had replaced all of God's laws with a bunch of traditions. And so here we are at Matthew 15 verse 2, and these Pharisees and these scribes show up, and it looks like they've done a noble thing, right? They, they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted to go out and, and follow the rabbi. It looks well-intentioned. We ought to know better as we examine Scripture. And these Pharisees and scribes ask a question to Jesus. They say, hey, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. They're concerned with the the fact that the disciples didn't uh, sing the happy birthday song and lather their hands together to make sure they had clean hands before they broke their bread. This was their grievance. Now, I want you to notice something very uh, important about this before we flip over to Luke chapter 11. It appears that the Pharisees and the scribes have a problem with the disciples and not with Jesus, right? But we know better. Luke chapter 11 has a a comparable account. Look with me at verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. It says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So this is a different account, but it's the same heart of these group of Pharisees. And in this case, the, the Pharisee doesn't call out Jesus' disciples. He goes right for what Jesus is doing. Jesus, you didn't wash your hands before you're eating. But keep in mind the, the pretext that we see in Matthew 15 too. Right? The world around us likes to call out problems that they have with people who follow Jesus. They criticize those who ascribe faith in Jesus. Right? But ultimately, who's their problem with? Their problem is with Jesus. Their problem is with our Lord and Savior who delivers a message of repentance that is unpopular and requires a humble confession to the Lord. So we have this, this conversation, and, and these Pharisees and these scribes, they follow Jesus, they go to where he is, and it's also important in the same Luke account, while we have our Bibles open, to look at the very end of this chapter 11, verse 53. Look at the, the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes. They weren't there to learn from Jesus. They weren't there to get some new techniques for honoring God with their hearts and their lives. Look why they're there. Verse 53 of Luke 11. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. So nothing about this is, is well-intended or well-motivated. And so they come to Jesus and they bring this accusation to him saying, 
what's up with your disciples? They're not washing their hands before they eat. And Jesus doesn't go into an explanation of, well, there's not soap handy, or there's other things here at play. He actually turns it around and responds to their hearts with a very pointed question. Look at verse 3. And he answered them and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he goes into a very specific case in which the Pharisees and the scribes, perhaps one in this particular group that God knew of regarding how there's treatment of father and mother. And before I go into those couple of verses, verses four through six, let me just put this in a way that we can apply to ourselves. It says, and he answered them and said, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And so the first point of of the message today is to call us to do a self-examination of our why. So there's three W's today. We're going to examine why we do things. We'll then examine our worship And then we'll examine our washing. So three W's to make it easy for you. The first one is examine our why. What is our motivation? And Jesus says, what's your motivation for this question about the disciples washing their hands? Let's talk about your motivation. Your motivation, if you really want to honor God, let's honor your parents. Right? There's some parents at home that are pretty excited and see this sermon might take a direction to honor your father and mother, but that's not where we're going today. We're going to see that there is a specific example that Jesus is using to say, Look, you've missed the entire point of the law. If we look at honor your father and mother, Scripture says this is the first commandment that comes with it, a promise. Right? The promise is honor your mother and father that it may go well for you and that your days may be long. But the issue is the underlying motivation that these Pharisees and the scribes have with their tradition. It's not to honor God. It's to be seen. It's to be following rules in such a way that they have the honor of men And an example that comes to mind for me with this as we examine the why is to see our own temptation to get focused on how we do things rather than for whom or why. A couple of weeks ago, some of of the women uh, were here in this uh, church building enjoying a time of retreat, a time of worship, a time of fellowship, a time of encouragement. And the last night of the retreat, there was a, uh, a women's dinner and some of the brothers were asked to come and do some, some service and serve a meal. And, and I thought about that and the, um, some of the, the emotions and the pressure that I felt being a part of that service team. Um, it was one of the waiters. Uh, I think the term might be dumb waiter. But in any case, um, there's a waiter and uh, Brother Pete um, was kind of leading up that time of service. And, and there were a few things that he established for us, but I appreciate his grace and in, in how he communicated. But there was things like, okay, serve from the left, Take from the right. I'm like, okay, I think I can get that. And then there's like two forks, and I really never understood as a man why there's two forks, and there's two plates, and there's all these things about make sure the glasses never gets below half full, and make sure when somebody's done with something, you clear the plate, and the next thing you know, it's pretty easy to fixate on, I better make sure I wait on this table properly. And why hasn't Sean brought more bread, right? There's all these things, and we can easily get f- caught up in the fact that we're not doing it right, and lose track of the why we're doing it and the who we're doing it for. This is an act of worship, an act of service to our sisters in Christ. Let's not get caught up in the mechanics. And that's precisely what Jesus is calling out these Pharisees and these scribes for doing. You invalidate the word of God for your tradition. And he goes in to to play this specific example 
um, of honoring your father and your mother. And to, to really understand this, we need to understand that in Mark chapter 7, we get a little bit more detail of the particular offense that Jesus is addressing. So I'll invite you to go briefly to Mark chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 9 through 12. I'll also make a, uh, a quick commercial for those digital scribes that faithfully serve the body here at Pacific Hope. We have uh, a team of people who um, come early, stay late, and, and edit the, the audio and the video so that we can go back and listen to sermons and be edified. If we're away from the body, we have that as a resource. And I will tell you that if you dig through the sermon library, Pastor John preached an incredible sermon on Mark chapter 7, a, a parallel to this text, and you may be built up by listening to that message. But what we see here in Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 9, is Jesus expounding upon this offense and failing to honor God in their way of living this out. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained for me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many such things. Right? So again, the honor of your father and mother isn't the thrust of this passage. It's an example that Jesus is giving to call out the fact that they've lost track of why they're being obedient to God. They've lost track of their motivation ultimately to follow these commandments and to obey God out of love and devotion for him. May it not be so with us. Examine the why in our actions. Going back to Matthew chapter 15, we see verse 6 and, and special emphasis here in the, ES, in the NASB translation. It says, And he is not to honor his father or mother. By this, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. We'll talk more about tradition in this next point as we begin to look at this notion of examining our worship, examining the way in which our hearts are directed to rightly honor and glorify God. Verse 7, Jesus says, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What a cutting statement. You hypocrites! That was going to be the title of this morning's sermon, but I figured um, it might be even uh, a little bit harder to get people to tune in with that particular title. But as we think about the notion of hypocrites, it's a word that gets thrown around all the time. It's a word that often gets associated with Christians. But I would like to, to share with you a, a thought that I, I heard in another preaching. The idea that followers of Jesus Christ, if in fact we have deposited our faith in Jesus Christ, we are not hypocrites. See, the word hypocrite is a word that comes from the notion of acting. In the days of, of the, the Romans and the Greeks, you'd stand behind a mask and you would read a, a script, read a set of lines. And today, of course, in the movies, you have somebody who reads a set of lines and they're pretending to be a doctor. And the idea of hypocrisy is that the words that you're saying are not words that you believe. For us as Christians, our problem isn't that we don't believe the words that we're saying. The problem that we have is that our actions don't line up with what we believe. You see the distinction? The distinction there isn't that we, we contradict ourselves because we say things that we don't believe. It's because it's 
it's difficult for us without the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to live out that which we believe. There's a song from a, a Christian rapper that occasionally I listen to. Um, you'll get fewer classic rock references than, than usual this week, but maybe a Christian rap song. And one of the, the lyrics says, my heart is still light years behind my library. You ever look at the books that are on your shelf? You ever look at the deep theology that we have access to? And our conduct falls far short of this on a daily basis. So the accusation against us might not be hypocrisy. The, the accusation against us is that without the, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, we cannot live out effectively what we profess. So these words, you hypocrite, are being prescribed specifically to the Pharisees and to the scribes. Curiously enough, doing a little bit of look at the, uh, at the word hypocrite, it only appears once in the Old Testament, and that's in the book of Psalms, and that only happens in ESV, and it's probably mistranslated. The word that, that should be there is, you pretenders, right? Otherwise, the word hypocrite is only used by Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This Greek word, Jesus uses it over and over and over again. It's almost all in the synoptic gospels. We find a variation of the word hypocrite with hypocrisy. And curiously enough, that's Brother Paul. Brother Paul uses that to call out Peter and says, you're acting with hypocrisy because, you know, you go have pork chops with your Gentile buddies and then you call out everybody for not following Jewish law. Peter, of course, repents of that. And later we'll find in 1 Peter that he also warns us as New Covenant believers, of the dangers of hypocrisy. But the word hypocrite itself is only used by Jesus and almost exclusively for the same group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes. So keep that in mind as we use the word. Let's not use it the way the world around us uses it, and let's not fall into the, the spirit of misidentifying our problem. Our problem isn't words contradicting what we believe, it's our actions falling short of that which we know. Jesus says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy. Now this to me is, is fascinating. Again, some of our Bibles have this in red. Who's saying this? Jesus, right? There might be some that would say, well, that's kind of a stretch to apply this particular passage written 800 years earlier to this group of people. But seeing as he wrote it, he could probably get away with that, right? Who carried the prophet Isaiah? Who filled him with this Holy Spirit to deliver this message? Jesus. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son from eternity past, the words that Isaiah spoke are very rightly applied to the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment. Isn't that remarkable? Just think about that. Now, of course, as a student of Isaiah, I love the fact that there's full of double meanings. It's like looking at a mountain range here and knowing that there's another mountain range behind it. There was application in the day of Isaiah, no doubt. But Jesus says, there's an application to this group of people at this point in human history that he is standing and talking to. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. Those words would sting. We'll also see, um, if we have a chance to, to see that there's also some other undertones of the text of Isaiah that Jesus is inferring in this text. There's a talk of blindness, right? If you read the book of Isaiah, there's constant talk about how God blinded those rulers, how those rulers were blind. And Jesus applies these things stingingly to the Pharisees and the scribes. And what does Jesus say? He says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine 
the precepts of men. Those words are a, are a quotation, a citation from Isaiah chapter 23 that Brother Ty read for us this morning. And I'd like for us to, to look at that again. Um, please flip to Isaiah chapter 9. Um, uh, we do have a PowerPoint slide for this, and you'll see that there are two versions side by side. Curiously enough, with this particular translation, the uh, Bible that I'm preaching from this morning is NASB 1995. Others of you might have a different translation that's a little bit newer of NASB. And the words that are used to translate this text come through a bit differently. But let's look at it. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. The word rote, we get the word routine from this. It's something that's repeated. It's something that's done mechanically. And, and I want to point out as we look at this too, that Jesus in this text calls out and identifies specific parts of the human body. Right? The disciples, or the Pharisees and the scribes start out with, hey, hands, hands are dirty. Right? And now Jesus says, in this passage, he's talking about lips, right? Lip service. And then he'll talk about mouth and, and how the things that come out of our mouth de demonstrate our heart, which is wicked and deceitful, if not for the work of Jesus Christ. But in this particular translation, it says, the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, things that we do over and over again. Now, it, it's easy for us as uh, as evangelicals as reformed to call out how Roman Catholicism has rote traditions, the rosary, the, the process of confession, and, and all these things that are, that are traditions that are rote. But what about us? What about our own faith? Are there things that we do that are not sincere worship, but instead something we do out of tradition? Let me give a few examples. Because there are things that we do just as a matter of routine that we don't do as acts of worship payday comes around. It's time to write your tithe check. You just do it. Some of you got it set up on bill pay. Do we sit down and pray? Father God, thank you that I still have a job. Thank you for this provision. Thank you, Lord, that I get to give this to your work and may it be faithfully administered. This is worship. Giving is worship. Do we think about it that way? Another great example is Praying before dinner. Praying for dinner, right? This, this is always one I, I've, uh, I've struggled with. As a kid, uh, my mom was quite a prayer warrior, and we would always volunteer to pray for dinner because if mom prayed, food was going to get cold. <laughs> it was kind of a, a checklist, right? We knew we were going to pray before dinner. Mom would pray so long, we would want to come up with prayers, and you know, there's always the jokes about rub-a-dub-dub, -dub, bless this grub, yay God, right? Do we just pray so that we can get to the meal? Or is it a, a, a sincere offering of thanksgiving to the Lord? Some people pray out of tradition so that other people might see them, right? You go out to a restaurant and you want people around you, non-believers, to see that you are, um, as a family, praying and talking to God before your meal, right? Go to the Chick-fil-A, Saturday, of course. You pray before your meal. Of course, some of us know that the food at Chick-fil-A is already blessed, so you can skip that formality. But in all seriousness, I would encourage those of you who have the good habit of praying before a meal, flip the script. Finish your food. Eat with, with joy and with thanksgiving. Clear the table 
and then go back and sit down again and pray. And it doesn't have to be a 90-second prayer before you eat. It can be a, a precious time of, of praying with the people that you love, the people that are under your roof, and a time of sincerely approaching the throne of grace that he's made possible. Flip the script on that. Don't let it just become a formality before you eat. Again, this week would be a communion Sunday. How mechanical does that become for us? Have we, have we actually thought about our attitude towards communion? Do we recognize, oh man, church is going to be 15 minutes longer this week, <laughs> right? Or do we, we come preparing our hearts and doing self-examination, acknowledging that it is a time for us to commemorate what Christ has done for us? There's churches I've heard of that, that have great debates about whether communion is the first Sunday of the month or the last Sunday of the month, and these things don't matter. What matters is that when you take this bread and you drink this cup that we commemorate what it is that the Lamb of God did in washing us. So the, the second kind of call of application as we examine this text is examine our worship. As Jesus said, their hearts are far away. They've missed the whole point of this, right? We come into the presence of God to worship and to glorify him with our lives. So let's be intentional about those things that are acts of worship and not mechanical. Going back to Matthew chapter 15, we see a, a little bit of a shift in the people that are a part of this particular narrative at verse 10. So Jesus calls out the Pharisees, he calls them out and says they're hypocrites. He applies rightly the words of Isaiah to them. And then in verse 10 it says, And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Hear and understand. And then he explains something really, really critical. He says, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. See how Jesus again flips the script? It's not a problem of what goes into your mouth. It's not what you eat. It's what comes out. For us as a church, this is a really important distinctive. This is a distinctive in doctrine that we know as the doctrine of, of total depravity. This is the reality that that which comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's continue looking at the text. So, so now Jesus is directing his focus to a crowd of people. In Mark chapter 7, uh, we see that there's actually kind of a movement from one place to another that's happening at the same time. But Jesus addresses the crowd. The crowd, of course, would probably still include the Pharisees and the scribes. And the crowd most likely, almost certainly, included his disciples. And we'll get to them in a minute. But he's addressing this greater group. And this is what he says. Here, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you not see that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And we'll, we'll stop there for just a moment to, to dig a little bit deeper into this notion of our mouth and the connection to our heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, we know that the heart is deceitful and wicked and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The condition of the human heart prior to the, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ is wicked. That which naturally comes out of it is offensive and not worshipful. If you don't believe me, hit your hand with a hammer while doing home improvements projects. What comes out? Accidentally rear-end somebody at the traffic light. What comes out of your mouth? 
right? These are the things that naturally overflow from our hearts. And as we grow in, in maturity, as we grow in sanctification by God's grace, we can retrain our heart and our mouth, right? And that's our, that's our call as believers. But in our lack of maturity, we can see the truth in that, what just comes out. Looking at verse 12, 13 and 14, I want to draw a connection again to the, the book of Isaiah. And this is important because Jesus was not speaking to a group of people who were uninformed of Scripture. These people were, in fact, experts. They'd taken it and they'd added to it and they'd put extra fences around it to make sure that they obeyed to the letter of the law. So they got this understanding and this reference that Jesus is making. So look at verse 13. Well, verse 12. The disciples the subset of the, of the crowd, say to him, the disciples came and said to him, Did you, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? You think Jesus knew that? <laughs> I think he knew that. I think he intended that. His word came to divide. His word came to cut. His word came to reveal the condition of our sinful and wicked hearts. You can't help but chuckle with that, right? The disciples. You know, you, you, you kind of heard their feelings. And it wasn't even their their his, their feelings that may have been a concern here, it was actually Jesus' safety. These are a powerful people. As we saw in, the, in Luke chapter eleven fifty three. 53, these are a group of people who are out to get him. The disciples may have been, maybe we could have toned that down a little bit, right? Maybe we could have communicated that a little more eloquently. <laughs> and here's what Jesus says to that. But he answered them and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. And the verse right after that, let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now to understand the alliteration to the book of Isaiah, I would ask you to please flip to Isaiah chapter 60, and then be ready to go one chapter ahead of that in Isaiah chapter 59. So, in verse 13, it says, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. In Isaiah chapter 60, we see a, psalm, uh, a, a song that would have celebrated the promise of coming redemption to the people of Israel. A Jew would have known this as kind of a high point of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. There's three discrete movements. And the, 60, the, the, the last portion of the book, including chapter 60, would have been a bright spot to hold on to the promises and to celebrate what they mean for you. Right? Don't we love that? We like to apply verses to our own lives like, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? But... Look what Jesus does here. Again, he flips the script. Isaiah 60, verse 21, it says, Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting. You see what he does there? He says that tax that you like to apply to yourselves, not you. Not you. They, the Pharisees would like to think, hey, we're going to possess this land because we're God's vineyard. We're God's planting. And what Jesus says in verse 13, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Subtle, but that indirect comment that Christ made would have been directly understood by those to whom he spoke. And then, before you leave the book of Isaiah, verse 14 of Matthew 15 says, Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. One chapter ahead, Isaiah chapter 59 
we see, starting at verse 9, a, a long extended prayer that in my Bible is called a confession of wickedness, right? This is right before the bright spot in Isaiah where the people are confronted with their sins and confronted with the reality of their wickedness. And if we look at how blindness is described in verses 9 and 10, it says, Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along a wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as with twilight. So Jesus is describing, and throughout the book of Isaiah, there's plenty of other examples of blindness, but this one specifically is unique because it's those two chapters right together. The Pharisees like to claim chapter 60 and distance themselves from chapter 59. Jesus flips it around. says, you're blind. And he's telling the disciples, warning the disciples, as he did many times, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the use of the Pharisees. Stay clear of them. Don't worry about them. Don't be distracted with them. Understand what worship of God is. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Continuing at, at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 15, we see another shift in, in uh, movement here. We've gone from the, the Pharisees and the scribes to the crowd to now a subset. And now guess what? Matthew calls out Brother Peter here. Look what he says. Verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And for those of you who, who love to study the differences between the synoptic gospels, we know that the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's kind of got his own uh, way of presenting this universal message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Matthew and Mark have very different ways of, of telling some of the same narrative. We know from um, historical context that Mark got most of his accounts from Brother Peter. So if you go to Mark chapter 7, just out of uh, curiosity, you'll see that it wasn't Peter that asked this question. According to Peter, as he tells Mark, is the disciples, right? So, so Peter kind of hides behind a little bit of anonymity in this. But in Matthew's account, Peter takes the fall, right? Peter says, hey, could explain this parable to us. Peter's always been a little slow, right? That's why we love the brother and can identify with him in so many ways. He says, Jesus, explain this parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Like, I can understand these guys don't get it, but you don't get it either. Listen, Peter. Jesus said, are you lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Verse 17 is quite intriguing, isn't it? Jesus explains the digestive system to Peter right? That which goes into the mouth, goes into the stomach, and comes out. There's actually another translation of the Mark account that says passes into the latrine, right? So you don't need any more mental pictures to understand what Jesus is explaining here. He's, he's explaining that this process is a natural process, and that's not the part that makes you unclean. The part that makes you unclean is what comes back out. And as I'd started to say, this notion of, of the doctrine of, of total depravity, if we wrestle with that, if we want to come up with a different conclusion— it's right here in red letters. That doctrine isn't from John Calvin. That doctrine's not even from, from Paul, although he, the, both those brothers give it to us too. That's the words of Jesus. It's what comes out of your heart. That's the problem. Those 
defile the man. And that's why the, the third and important application of what I want us to look at today is for us to examine our washing, right? We're going to examine the why that we do things. Do we do things mechanically without a, the love of God being our motivation? And secondly, will we examine our worship? Do we do things out of tradition and rote? And the third thing is for us to examine our washing. Have we been washed? And let's look at what that means. First of all, do we know that we need to be washed? Or, or do we understand that? Because when we get into these conversations with people who are about people basically good, basically bad, and I'm a good person, right? The, the, the moralism that we talk about, we've missed the fact that we need to be washed. Proverbs chapter 30 Verse 12, in NASB, which will look a little different than what you have there, says, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Right? So the first and important step for us to being able to examine our, our washing is to identify that we need to be washed in the first place. Are we recognizing the fact that the things that overflow out of our hearts are an offense to our holy God? Do we recognize the fact that our mouth often disqualifies us from being effective ambassadors of Jesus Christ? How does James describe the tongue, right? The rudder of a ship that steers us off course. What we see as we, as we look at this examination, we know that we need to be washed. We see... Jesus say, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile the man. He explains what ultimately puts us at odds with God. It's not disobeying the commandments in and of itself. It's our nature. It's our, it's our inner man that is unregenerate without the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So the, the encouragement that I would have to you is if you're here and you've identified the fact that you need to be washed, we're on the right track, right? As Pastor John has said before, a dead person doesn't fight against their sin, right? A person who, who has not yet identified their sinful nature doesn't recognize that they need to be washed. But in fact, we do. That washing is made possible through Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. Again, we get to see our brother Peter on, on display as uh, he struggles to understand the truth of what Jesus is explaining to him about washing. And I, I need to, to back up and mention that the Pharisees had wrongfully applied the whole rule about washing your hands before you ate. If you think about it, they didn't have uh, Purell dispensers at every eatery along the way. Washing hands in a basin wouldn't have been readily available. So the kind of washing that the Pharisees probably had in mind was that of a Levitical priest washing his whole body and his hands and his feet before going in to the holy place. It wasn't about having a piece of bread on the way. It was wrongly applied. But in the upper room, Jesus' time with his disciples, we see a ceremonial washing, rightly applied. John chapter 13, I'll start at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already entered into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. What a remarkable encounter. Jesus, the God-man, Messiah, the promised one, takes off his outer garment in an act of humility, washes his disciples' feet. Peter objects, and Jesus says, unless you're washed by me, you have no part in me. So as we examine our our washing, we got to understand, do we know that we need to be washed? Do we know that we don't have a share in, in, in salvation in the kingdom of God unless Christ has washed us? He's washed us, and we know as believers the assurance of salvation that we have over and over in Scripture is that Jesus has paid it all, once and for all. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus finished the work on the cross, he forgave our sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. It's complete. That doesn't mean that we don't need periodical washing, a touch-up, right? You get your car detailed, and a good detailing should last you three months in San Diego because it never rains, right? But that doesn't mean you don't need to do a little, a little wash-up. And there's some spiritual application to that as well, right? On a daily basis, we as New Covenant believers have been washed once and for all by the Lamb of God, need to go to him and confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look again at John chapter 13. Verse 9 and 10, Peter says, Man, if you're going to wash me, wash all of me. And what does Jesus say? The one who has bathed need not wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. What Jesus has done for us in washing us, if we examine our hearts, we know that we are declared innocent because of the work of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that self-examination doesn't require us to evaluate our ongoing battle with sin. In preparing and understanding this, it was a reminder that for us as believers, washed by the blood of the Lamb, we still battle daily with the world around us. We deal with the accuser who wants to drag us back to our sin and, and lie to us that we haven't been washed, right? And then we battle with our inner sin, our inner flesh, That threefold battle is with us until we breathe our last and our faith is made sight. Peter says, wash all of me. Jesus says, you've been washed. You've been washed. And as we we think of what we would be commemorating doing communion today, it's important for us to recognize that um, our worthiness to participate in his blood isn't because of anything we've done. It's because of his washing in Honduras, we had a, a sister in Christ who struggled regularly and would go to the pastor and say, I'm going to pass the plate this time. I'm not going to participate in communion. I just don't feel worthy. The pastor's like, sister, glad you don't feel worthy, but you are worthy. 
examine your sin, confess to Christ, and accept the fact that your washing is once and for all. And the, the ongoing work of washing your feet is something that God freely extends to us. The other text that we looked at beginning our time together today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul puts different words to those two types of washing, right? The once and for all washing and that periodic washing that we as believers need and enjoy because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you. That awful list of, of sins and grievances, those things that pour out of our hearts, we were like that. We would be like that if not for the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Justification once and for all because of what Jesus did and that sanctification, ongoing, needful, daily washing. That's what Christ has done for us. So this morning as we look at, at, at this text and we understand how quickly we can miss the point. We can get caught up in, in rules. We can get caught up in traditions. We can get caught up in, in all these things and miss what Christ has done in providing that washing for us. Examine why we do things. Let our faith not be mechanical. Let our, our attendance at church and all those other things not just be something that we do out of tradition. Examine why for love and devotion to God. Examine our worship. Is our giving worship? Is our prayer worship? Is our involvement with the body and our celebration of communion truly worship? We'll sing one more song together this morning and it's different experience singing in front of your TV at home. But think about the words that we sing. Think about the worship that's transpiring and more importantly, think about the object of our worship. Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Then finally, again, examine our washing. Have you been washed by the blood of Jesus? If so, rejoice. Your sins have been wiped away. You've been made eligible to participate in the salvation that Christ Jesus came to offer. And daily confess, daily cry out to him for he is your ever-present help in time of need. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word that is perfectly inspired, perfectly preserved. We thank you for the gospel accounts where we hear straight from your mouth, Lord God, eternal words. Words that also offer eternal life. Words that for us as new covenant believers, yes, they invite conviction. Yes, they, they require self-examination. Yes, they can be painful. But God, they bring us hope. They bring us a recognition that you are glorified when we are weakest. God, we recognize that the depths of the wickedness of our hearts, were it not for your gospel, would certainly condemn us. We would certainly be on the other end of, of scathing words from a holy and righteous judge. But you preserve us through that. You rescue us from that by taking the wrath that was due for us. We thank you for that. We just ask that as we live out this week, the things that overflow out of our heart would be thoughts of gratitude, would be thoughts of thanksgiving, and that those things that are from our, our sinful nature, that we would put those to death in keeping with obedience to your word. Thank you for this opportunity to examine your word. We pray that um, those uh, around the world who worship together this morning would have an encounter with your word in such a way that it would transform the way in which we live. Help us, Lord God, to live out that which we know to be true. Help us to have our actions measure up to that which we believe. 
that you might be glorified. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.